Welcome to St. John. We are happy to have you with us. And if you're joining us online, we're happy to have you with us as well. This is an important series, Ideal Family. And, and uh, in fear and trepidation, I think you come and you think, wow, I'm not sure whether this is going to make me feel good or make me feel bad. You know, put yourself in my position. You know, I'm going to reveal God's perfection about the family. And we being imperfect people are going to have to wrestle with that. But we don't want to back off on that either. So let's, let's pray that God sends a special measure of his spirit that you would be blessed and not troubled uh, by this time that you spend with him. We pray. Gracious Lord, uh, we commend our lives to you. We don't want you to back down. We don't want you to back off. We need to know the absolute truth in matters. And yet, Lord, we are uh, failed people. We are flawed people. And, and as we uh, face that, sometimes it can, it can uh, trouble us and cause us to struggle. Lord, send your Holy Spirit uh, to remind us of your great love, your compassion, and your empowering spirit that can help us rise above our human condition. This we pray in Christ Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Great to have you today. We, uh, we uh, gather together and, and uh, design these services, uh, Pastor Dion and I and Julie Lorenz, who uh, is over our, our care ministries, uh, way back, you know, even a couple of months ago. But finally, when it comes time to prepare for a weekend message, uh, I meet with uh, some other pastors, Pastor Dion and Andy Audet, our, our new uh, uh, SEM4 uh, fellow, and some other guys come as well, and we meet and we study the text, and they all know what the text is in advance, and they all know the theme in advance, and, and, and we meet early at 6 o'clock, and we go through the text, and, and I got there a little bit early, and as they came in, I asked each one, so were you raised in an ideal family? Were you raised in a perfect family? And and uh, pretty honest, pretty vulnerable, both of them said, yeah, no, and as more came in, no, and I said, well, what about your family? Your family's probably ideal because you made all the course correction that your folks got wrong, right? So, well, not exactly, you know, so none of us have been raised in the perfect or ideal family. I'm sure that's true. You know, my family was not that. My dad was a World War II vet, and uh, I don't know if they knew what PTSD was, post-traumatic stress disorder, we just thought dad was in a bad mood. You know, and we, we kind of picked up on his moods. This was a night to probably stay outside, you know, and, and my dad and my mom were not perfect people. And nevertheless, everybody who acknowledged that they didn't have a perfect family said, and yet something good came out of that. You know, it wasn't all bad. You know, we were blessed even by the imperfection, right? And my family is not perfect either, you know, although I made course correction my son's sitting over here uh, to my right, to your left today. And, and I do remember a time that I was called in, uh, by the Afton Police Department, and they asked me to bring my sons with me and come down just for a bit of a meeting. And, uh, and so we came down, we had a bit of a meeting, you know, and uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't all perfect, but it all, it all worked out and lessons were learned. And the only one happy about that was my mother, because she had prayed that would happen to me someday. And uh, her prayer were answered. Her prayers were answered. And, and, and as I think about representing less than ideal families, I thought nobody represents, you know, the less than ideal family than this guy, Rodney Dangerfield. In, in fact, I did a little investigation about his life. And, you know, his daddy deserted their family when he was just very, very young. In fact, he didn't meet his daddy until he was successful many years later. Then his daddy all of a sudden showed up. And that was a struggle with him as to whether he would forgive his father or not. 
his mother was forced with his younger brothers and sisters to move in with a sister and combine their resources to provide, you know, for her family because she assumed the responsibility. And Rodney talked about how he sold ice cream at the beach, delivered newspapers and delivered groceries, you know, just to make, an, uh, you know, things work out and how tough that was without a dad and his family. But lessons were learned, and he began to uh, realize that his attitude about his less-than-ideal family was important to his success. You know, he began writing for other comedians, kind of hung out around that and was interested in that from age 20. You know, uh, 45 years later, he became an overnight success. You know, when uh, somebody couldn't make it to the Ed Sullivan show, he was having some success in the Catskills doing stand-up. And so uh, somebody from the Ed Sullivan group called him, invited him to the program, and the rest is history. He appeared on Johnny Carson no fewer than 35 times, became a great friend, opened a comedy club that for 40 years gave all new comedians a great start, including Jerry Steinfeld, Seinfeld, Jim Carrey, Tim Allen, Roseanne Barr, Jeff Foxworthy, uh, Sam Kinison, uh, Andrew Dice Clay, and Bob Saget. You know, so he came out of a difficult family and his attitude turned it around. And so let me help you. Let me provide some comfort by comparison. Because when he reflected on his family, he said, I get no respect, remember? You know, I don't get no respect. He said, in fact, when I was born, I was so ugly, the doctor slapped my mama, he said. <laughs> and he said, when I was born, then the doctor, he went out to the waiting room to visit with my father. And he said, I'm sorry, we did everything we could. But he pulled through. <laughs> he said, I remember a time when I was a young kid, I was kidnapped. And he said, you know, the kidnapper sent a finger to my daddy. And my daddy said he wanted more evidence. He said, I looked up my family tree once, and he says, it wasn't good. I'm telling you, I get no respect. He said, I found out I was the sap. I got a million of them. He said, I once complained to my psychologist. He said, you know, uh, everybody hates me. And he says, don't be ridiculous. Everybody doesn't know you yet. And then when I came to his own marriage, he says, you know, it's tough to stay married. He says, uh, my wife kisses my dog on the lips and she won't drink from the same glass I do. I don't always see eye to eye with my wife. I told her one day I thought our kids were spoiled and she said, don't be ridiculous. All kids smell that way. <laughs> my wife isn't a good cook either. He said, I get no respect. He says, at my house we pray after the meal. <laughs> one more. <laughs> He said, my wife and I, we sleep in separate rooms. We eat meals at different times. We take separate vacations. We do everything we can to keep our marriage together. <laughs> his headstone rings Rodney Dangerfield. By the way, that wasn't his real name. Jack Benny created that character as a bumbling cowboy. And he took it because he recognized himself in that name. He took that name for himself. His headstone says, Rodney Dangerfield, there goes the neighborhood. And at his memorial service, his friends hired a skywriter that uh, appeared over the sky at the end of his memorial services. They made their way to the cemetery, and it said, respect at last. That's what it said. Using God's design for family is exactly where the Pharisees felt Jesus had a weakness. Because they all know that we feel some shame, we feel some guilt, we feel a great sense of failure when it comes to family. You know, no matter how great you're doing, you always believe that somebody's doing it better or perhaps you could do it better. 
And so the Pharisees came at Jesus on the issue of family. And here's how it goes. Uh, Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 1 through verse 12. When Jesus had finished these things, he, went, uh, he left Galilee. He went down south to Judea to the opposite side of the Jordan. In other words, opposite Jericho, uh, where John the Baptist had been baptizing. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them of their diseases. When Pharisees came to him to test him, they asked, Is it really lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. And the two shall no longer be two, but they shall be one flesh, not divisible. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Hmm, Perfect question, right? You know, they were waiting for that answer because they said, why then? Are you greater than Moses? Did not Moses command that a man could give his wife a certificate of divorce and he could send her away? Jesus said, Moses permitted, permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, you know, because of your sinfulness. But it was not that way from the beginning. This is not God's ideal. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, well then, where's the value? Because it's impossible to be that. He said, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, maybe it's better not to marry at all. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word. It's only for those to whom it has been given. There are men unable to conceive, unable to have children, families, who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are those who have been rendered that way unable to conceive by other men. And there are those without children by choice, as Paul was, for the sake of the kingdom. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. The Pharisees came to put Jesus to a test, and the test took the form of an impossible question. You know, is it okay to... Uh, divide a family? Is it okay to divorce? If he says yes, they'll say, well, what did God say? And if he says no, they'll say, well, what did Moses say? Because there seems to be an inconsistency that the Pharisees knew about it. It's still a question that people ask. You know, if my family is less than ideal, you know, if I'm a failure, what's a failure to do? Should we stay together at all costs? You know, what's the value of marriage anyway? Why did God design the family as he did? Why do our pastors stand in front of us and ask this impossible question? For better or for worse? For richer or for poorer? In sickness and in health? Until death parts us. You know, wouldn't it be better to to acknowledge the practice of the day and say, you know, for better, for richer, for healthy, so long as love shall last? You know, Jesus was not unaware of our human condition, not unaware of our inability to be perfect, not unaware of our ability to be ideal. And he referred them back to God's original plan. Those conditions no longer exist. He says from the beginning it was not so. God created them to be one flesh, no longer two but one. Let no one divide what God has planned. And yet Paul acknowledged our inability to keep God's perfection 
in throughout the book of Romans, in chapter 5, he says, Sin entered the world through one man, namely Adam, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all of us, all of us sin and fall short of God's glory. There is no perfect family. There is no ideal marriage. There is no ideal mom, no ideal daddy. In fact, in chapter 7 of that same book, Paul went even deeper and got more personal and more vulnerable and more transparent about his own condition. He said, I know that the law is spiritual. You know, I know God's word is true and absolute. He says, and when I read it, I know that I am unspiritual. I know that I am imperfect and I know that I am flawed and I am failed. I am sold as it is a slave to sin. You know, sin seems to have its way with me. It gives me orders and I have to obey. And he says, and it's confusing to me. Because what I want to do, I do not do. I do what I hate to do. And so I agree, the scripture is true and I am false. For it says, uh, I know that nothing good dwells in my sinful nature. You know, we're all going to fall. We're all going to fail. You know, let's just... Get that straight and let me help you with that. And yet I'm not going to say we should probably take the edge off of God's perfection and say just do the best you can. No, there's value in God's perfection. God's ideal still has merit even if failure is inevitable. You know, few artists who paint or draw, you know, ever ascend to the title of master And yet all artists love the masters and they study them and they desire to be like them to some degree. Few musicians or few vocalists can sing like those who are truly gifted and yet they admire those who are truly gifted. They study them and try to learn from them. Few of us can write like the poets or the people who get published and yet we love to read what these gifted people can write. No matter what your field is, There are those whose abilities put your abilities to shame. But we don't want to settle for less. No, those who show excellence inspire us and cause us to aspire to even greater things. And if we can touch that level for a moment, and all of you can, you know, through repentance and through God's forgiveness and God's restoration and his empowering spirit, all of us can live there for a moment. We've all had experiences where we just said, man, this marriage is awesome. Man, these children are incredible. What a gift they are from God, despite all the other times. If we can cut, touch that level for a moment, our mundane is made special. Our moments of grandeur keep us from spiraling down, you know, to just acceptance of our failure. And let's not forget God's original design for the family either. He said it's not good for man to be alone. You know, not everyone is meant for marriage. You know, Paul was not married. But everyone is meant for relationship. And if you read the uh, New Testament, you know that, that Paul wept with people and they wept with him and he had close fellowship and close love and, and, and uh, you know, that friendship that was so essential to the value of his life. Solomon, the wisest man in the world, wrote these powerful scriptures that are often requested when we conduct weddings here. From Ecclesiastes 4, there was a man who was all alone. You know, not what God wanted. It's not good for man to be alone. He didn't make us that way. He had neither a son nor a brother. And there was no end to his toil. 
Yet his eye was not content with all of his success. And one day he woke up and said, so why am I working so hard? Why am I depriving myself for the sake of what? For whom am I toiling? This seems like meaningless business, miserable business, for two are better than one. For they have a good return on their labor. You know, they can celebrate their successes. And if one of them falls down, the other can help him up. But woe to the one who falls down and has no one in their life to even care. Did you see the news story recently in England? Uh, this World War II ace, you know, who, uh, whose wife had died and he was a widower for a long, long time and he had no immediate family. And uh, the radio caught wind of it. The news picked it up and said, you know, he has no immediate family. You know, no one should die alone. And, and they urged the nation to come out and honor him in his final ride to the cemetery. And the whole nation turned out. You know, we are meant for community. And that was a powerful moment for all of England. Paul acknowledged that he was not married, but he didn't say that that doesn't matter. He says, I wish that you were all like I am, single, because he could devote himself entirely to God's work. He said, but each of you has your own gift from God. This is my gift. It may not be yours. He said, I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. You know, it's not God's word on this, but let me give you some sanctified advice. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from commitment? Don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. You know, there's, there's value in that relationship. Even though he himself as a single man could devote himself and, and travel to the degree that he needed to to establish the kingdom of God. The Pharisees, though, when they heard God's ideal and realized they could never achieve it, said if failure is inevitable, perhaps it's best never to start. And uh, the concluding verses uh, in this section of scripture are kind of hard. He said, they asked Moses, they asked, did not Moses command that a person could give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce. He made allowance for your sin because your hearts were hard. But it was not the suggestion from the beginning. He said, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. That's a hard scripture. You know, are we all then who have divorced guilty of adultery? Jesus, in a way, by pointing this out, was in the face of the Pharisees who said, you know, Moses allowed, and so even if we have done this, we are permitted. Jesus said, you are not any better than those you point the finger at. And, uh, you know, there is that scarlet letter, you know, uh, that, the church sometimes frowns upon and people who go through divorce feel uncomfortable. It takes them a long time to come back to church. They feel that they'll be judged. When Jesus, in effect, raised the bar even higher in his own preaching, when he said, you have heard it was said, you should not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman with desire in his heart has already committed adultery with her. (laughs) Isn't that how God made us? You know, to be physically attracted to other people? And yet there's such a fine line that it's almost impossible not to cross at some time in your life. And yet our own failure, our own sin, does not wreck the beauty of God's design. It does not. Two wrongs don't make a right, but two wrongs make a moment. You know, when two sinners are joined together, it makes a moment for God to enter in. And to remind them there is forgiveness, man. There is restoration. There is power. You know, I love the scripture from Psalm 103. In fact, uh, I've mentioned before that I read it in uh, 
my own father's uh, memorial service 27 years ago. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed and he remembers that we are but dust. You know, I mentioned my father had issues. And, and, and yet uh, the idea of family as established by God is so powerful that hardly a week goes by I do not still think about my dad even though he died 27 years ago. In fact, I, I, I'm playing now with a different foursome than I used to play golf with before. And there's a guy in this group, and I finally called it out to him, uh, who addresses his ball. And just before he gets ready to hit, he pulls his chin up just a little bit and, and tucks his knees. And uh, the only other person I've seen do that exactly like that is my father. And every time he does it, you know, it just, man, it just comes flooding back. When I used to walk with my dad before I could even play and watch him do that, it was such ingrained in my mind. You know, and even now... Uh, my father is, is powerful in my life. Uh, and isn't this interesting? I don't think it's like this in any other part of the animal kingdom. God made us especially for family. And the legacy and the lasting value of family is one of God's greatest miracles. You know, even now I see my boys. You know, when uh, I say something to them, they, they, don't, they don't necessarily vocalize their response. They don't just, you know, grunt a response. But they'll just nod their head like that. And uh, my dad used to do that all the time. And I don't know how my boys picked that up. Maybe I do that a little bit, you know, and it's just kind of funny, you know, and it all comes flooding back to me, and, and my wife and I uh, kid each other with phrases that my dad used to say that I probably couldn't repeat in church, you know, uh, and, and so, you know, the, the sense of family is one of God's tremendous gifts. The ideal of family, the ideal of family, the perfection of family, God's intention for the family, it's worth all the trauma, it's worth all the failure, it's worth, you know, Saying you're sorry. You know, there was a movie when we were dating called Love Story that the key line and on all the trailers was, you know, uh, love means never having to see, you know it too, never having to say you're sorry. You know, that's, that's baloney, isn't it? You know, you got to say you're sorry a lot. Even when you're not, you have to say you're... <laughs> you know, our ideal needs a foil. It makes us stronger, doesn't it? You know, it makes you stronger. In fact, I have some single people on staff. I wish they were married because they don't have a foil, so they foil with me all the time. I say, find some meaningful person to argue with. You know, I don't have time for that, you know. You know, it's just important. It's how we, it's how we you know, feather out and strengthen our ideas. Our egos need a check. Our heartaches need some salve, some tending. Our insecurities need affirmation. And our future is best served by a past. You know, of all the things that amaze me about creation, and there are many, many things, I'm a very observant person, you know, just by nature of how God made me and also by nature of what I do. You know, I enjoy a sunrise. I enjoy a sunset. You know, I love to see animals in the wild. You know, as, as I hunt, I, uh, the animals I'm not hunting always show up in great number. And, uh, and I get to watch them and study them, and it's fascinating. I love the colors that God has created in the world. Why? Why didn't he make our world black and white? You know, it's just the nature of God, and it amazes me. I love the life, the life cycles, the thunderstorms, the birth of a child, but the power of family and the influence of a family. Family's never neutral. You know, your family of origin is not neutral. It's been a blessing in your life. It's been a struggle in your life, but it's made you who you are. The power of family is one of God's greatest miracles. In fact, uh, this is July 4th weekend, and uh, I just finished reading a book called Final Salute. 
and uh, the fellow who wrote it won a Pulitzer Prize for the book, and it's about those who died a hero's death saving the lives of their buddies in Afghanistan or, Viet or, or uh, Iraq. And it, it, it tells their story of how they died, and it tells the story especially of their family and how they dealt with this back in America and, and how the armies uh, and the Marines are learning to deal with that better. And at the conclusion of the book, the author writes, their life has not ended. No, it's not an ending. It's not a period at the end of their lives. It's a semicolon. Their story continues to be told. You know, from generation to generation, the influences felt even in our grandchildren who may never know us by name. And there's a decided Christian advantage to uh, God's ideal for family. There truly is. You know, we have access to God's original plan. You know, when we fail, when we lose our way, you know, we can look at Ephesians 5. We can look at Genesis chapter 2. You know, we can see what God intended and we can understand you know, what God would have us do in those situations, even if we're far from that. You know, we have access to the blueprint, you know, to the architect. And we can go back and reestablish, you know, our families on a firm foundation. And we also have uh, a rehab expertise available to us. You know, when it becomes to be a little shabby, you know, we can rehab our marriage like we rehab our houses. I love this passage from Colossians chapter 3. In fact, later in the service, I'm going to have you read it with me. Uh, I use it almost at the end of every memorial service because I know there are tensions in family. And sometimes if it's mom or dad who's laying here, you know, that we're memorializing, I wonder how will this family continue to be connected without that hub around whom they gather. The scripture says in Colossians 3, Paul, a single guy, wrote this. He said, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, for goodness sakes. Be kind, be humble, be gentle, be patient. All of these qualities needed in relationship. Bear with each other and forgive one another. And if you have a grievance, and you do, and some of them are justified, forgive. Why? Because they deserve it? Because they ask for it? No. Because the Lord, remember, forgave you. And over all of those virtues, and they would be plenty, you know, put on the capstone of love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Finally, the scripture ended by speaking about children and, and whether you can conceive or not conceive children. You know, and the ideal family does not require children. In fact, Jesus went on to say that they are a bonus, but they are not required. In Matthew uh, chapter 19, verse 12, he goes on to say, There are men unable to conceive who were born that way from their mother's womb. Not everybody you know, is able to conceive children. You know, we know people who have asked us to pray for that. We know people who have adopted children in their lives and people who have just been childless. That doesn't, that doesn't make you not uh, a family. And there are those who have been rendered that way uh, by other men. You know, slaves were often done that way in the first century. And there are those without children by choice, like Paul. He didn't choose to marry, didn't choose to have children because he was dedicated to the kingdom of God. You know, whoever has the ability to accept this, let him accept it. You know, children are not essential. Marriage is not essential to the ideal family. But everybody needs relationships. God has made us that way. And it's a powerful way. And if you don't have those kinds of meaningful, you know, intimate, personal relationships, your life is lesser for it. But when it comes to children, I, I remember Henny Youngman wrote, uh, What's a home without children? 
quiet, he said. That's what a home without children is. <laughs> and Franklin Jones said, you can learn a great deal from children. You can learn how much patience you have, for instance. You know, children are God's gift. In fact, the Bible says the fruit of the womb is his reward. How blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them. You know, for they will defend you when you meet your enemy. You know, your children will stand with you and stand for you. And that's a powerful thing. They're a blessing, but not essential. Well, let me pray for you as we uh, continue our series. And I, I pray that you're encouraged. I, I pray that you acknowledge that even though your family is less than ideal, that, that it can still be an awesome gift to you from God, we pray. Gracious Lord, we ask that you would bless these folks who have gathered, these folks who are going to hear this message, whether it be uh, from our archive or, or on the live stream. Uh, we pray that they just embrace with honesty uh, their failure and, and their weakness and their flawed state. But, but do not give up on family. Do not give up on relationships because that is the morrow. That is the sustenance of life. We can have everything like, like that man that was described by Solomon and, and kind of find it to be miserable business. Yeah, but two are better than one. So Lord, uh, bless us in our relationships and help us to work at them and to achieve the blessing that you intend through them. This we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.